right, well, let's continue along. We're in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. And um, we're, we're continuing along in this theme, zealous for good works. Last week, we were reveling in the grace of God, but, you know, we've got to continue reveling. I want to talk about a dynamic this morning. I was reminded as I was reading this chapter that there is a duality that we live with this side of eternity as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the duality, I could explain it like this, is that within each one of us, there is this power for good and this potential for evil. We are like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The scriptures tell us this. The scriptures tell us about the duality. The scriptures call us saints and sinners. It says that we live in the flesh, but at the same time in the spirit. It also says that we are an old man and a new man. So you got that? Capable of heroic love and horrible hatred all at the same time. Maybe you've read through the scriptures and you came across Romans chapter 7 and in this verse, as Paul describes his own duality, resonated with you. He says, I don't understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I've got to tell you, the first time I read that verse, I was like, yes, I resonate with that. That's true of me. But thank God that that's not the whole story, okay? I'm telling you, if that was the whole story, it would be kind of a sad story. Yeah, we're saved by grace, but then we're just kind of going to be going in this tug-of-war match back and forth, simultaneously winning and losing all the way through our Christian journey. But Paul tells us something new in Titus 2 this morning, and here's what it is. Grace does more than save us. Amen? Grace does more than save us. Grace is progressively working on us, even now, even in the present, and it's fighting against the duality, the Dr. Jekyll and the Mr. Hyde. Now, Paul is going to tell us how grace does this in the text. He tells us three things grace does. First, grace trains us. Second, grace motivates us. And thirdly, grace renovates us. So let's take a look at our passage. We're looking at Titus 2 verses 11 through 15 again. And Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, what, zealous for good works. Verse 15, Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So we begin with this idea of grace training us. As you think about God's grace in your life, I want to submit this morning that it is senseless when it comes to God, when it comes to following him, when it comes to pursuing him to only go halfway. I mean, as you think about God, God doesn't fit very well in the margins of your life. It's been said like this, Christianity makes a really, really, really bad hobby. Why? Well, because it's inconvenient and costly and cumbersome. It actually sounds a lot like the game of golf to me, right? If you treat the game of golf like your hobby, you're never going to be good at the game of golf. You're just going to hack up the green, hence why I'm never going to get good at golf. So God doesn't want to live at the margins. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, that the most miserable person in the world is the half-committed Christian. The half-committed Christian, just enough into God to be miserable in the world and just enough into the world to be miserable in God. Do you think that God saved you so that you would be miserable? Was that his intention? I don't think so. No, as I look at the scriptures and I understand this whole salvation dynamic, God saved us to bring wholeness, joy, peace, and purpose to our lives. Listen again to verse 12. For the grace of God appeared. Why? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly cravings and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So here's what grace is doing. It's training us to say no and to live yes. Say that with me. Say no and live yes. That's what grace is doing. Now, when we're talking about saving, saying no, Paul gives us two terms that are important, ungodliness and worldly passions. Let's define those. Ungodliness. Those are attitudes and actions that undermine the centrality of God in your life. Again, God doesn't want to exist in the margins. He wants to be central. And worldly passions are cravings that result from a hungry soul that doesn't have God at the center. So when God's not at the center of your life, when something else is occupying that space, you become hungry, you crave the wrong things. Most Christians do not struggle with saying no because they are rejecting God. They're saying no because they're not saying no because they are reducing him. It's because we're making him into some slightly bigger, slightly smarter version of ourselves, and that's just not going to do. 
God won't live like that in your world. I like what J.D. Greer says. He says, victorious, passionate Christian living is the result of finally seeing God for who he is, standing humbled before the heights of his holiness and awestruck at the depths of his love. Then and only then will you soar spiritually. And I really like that because I know in my life, I've experienced that Romans 7, you know, tension in my heart because I'm focusing so much on trying to reduce temptations. But that's not how you live a victorious life. The only way you live a victorious life is you enlarge God. You can't get away from temptation. Temptation is born out of desires that exist in your own heart. How do I run away from that? Well, the Bible says you can't. You have to have a bigger view of God. How do we enlarge in God in our heart and our mind? Well, it begins by getting into Scripture and seeing the character, the promises, and the purposes of God. Don't just read the Bible for facts and information. Read the Bible like it is telling you about someone. I love in our small groups this semester, if you haven't joined a small group, we're basically starting a new method where we go through the Bible inductively and we basically ask the same five questions of the passage each and every week to move from understanding to transformation, doing what it says. And the first question is simple. What's the passage saying? And unfortunately, sometimes when we read the Bible, we don't even start there. We just say, I really like this one verse. I like that. Well, that's great that you like that. But what is he saying? What's the passage saying? We move from asking that question and distilling into meeting to now asking the question, what is the problem that the passage is telling us about? Okay, problems in the scriptures have to do with something that has fallen in our human nature. Last week, our group was looking at James chapter 2, and in that passage, James is addressing the sin of partiality. There's something within us, in our human nature, that likes to categorize people as good and bad. And, and, and in, in that, we start separating the world into in and out, us and them. We can get into any kind of dynamic, no matter how much we seem like we're the same, and create distinctions amongst ourselves. Now, how do I address that problem? Well, some of us believe we address the problem by stewing into the problem, right? I need to just not be a judgmental people, a person, and I, I need to call judgmental people bad as well. But here's what happens when you address the problem that way. You create a new category of really bad people, and we call them judgmental people. So stewing on the problem doesn't produce the radical transformation that God wants in your life and my life. So then what's the solution? Well, I look at the character and promises and purposes of God. What does the Bible tell me about the character of God? It tells me that God is not a God of partiality at all. At all. He doesn't neatly divide us into categories. 
We all approach him on equal footing before the cross, at the cross, after the cross. Before the cross, we know that we're all sinners. At the cross, we come to the realization that there's grace made available to all of us if we would come through the portal of faith in Christ. And then after the cross, of course, we get to be transformed or made new into the image of Christ. So it all comes back to seeing God. Saying no involves seeing God more clearly. But grace trains us to do more than simply say no. It's also training us to live yes. And I want to suggest this morning that a big part of living yes involves seeing the absurdity of sin. Why is sin absurd? Well, first, think about what God has done. We come back to the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon, he said, God is more ready to forgive than I am to offend. I love that. So here we have this God who moves heaven and earth, who literally takes on flesh to save you, and then I'm going to respond to that by trampling upon his love and his grace by doing the same things that he came to die for me, to save me from? That's absurd. It's ungrateful. Why would I do that? And, and it's also absurd, not just because it's ungrateful, but also because it is self-defeating. Listen closely to this point. To sin against the law of God is to sin against the love of God. Which means then every time that I sin against God's law, I'm also sinning against myself. I like what Eugene Peterson says in his paraphrase of Matthew 5:19. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law and you will only trivialize yourself. Why is that? Well, if God created you in his image, the only pathway or roadmap to the life of meaning and purpose and joy involves God's moral will for your life. You cannot swim freely as you were designed to swim. Think of it like a fish. The fish finds meaning and purpose and joy while the fish lives in the water. The second you take the fish out of the water, what is it doing? It's kind of mindlessly flopping around and, and gasping for oxygen. And it's the same way with us. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, the entire world was like a bunch of fish thrown onto dry land, and we were meant to live in the ocean. So what does Jesus do? Well, he says in John 10.10, I have come, and I have come that you might have life and life abundant. I love that. So Jesus comes into the world so that you a fish who's lived on land all your life can be thrown back into the ocean. And how do you think that feels? It's great. Listen to the word abundant in the Greek. So abundant as to be considerably more than what one would expect or anticipate. How do you think you feel the first time you get in the ocean? If you've never been there, it feels great. So we've got to live, yes, and the way we live, yes, 
is by living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Self-control involves your personal actions, upright, how you relate to others, and godly, of course, how you relate to God. Grace does more. Grace saves you. Grace trains you. As we're going to see in verse 13, grace also motivates you. Look at that verse. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So now Paul's moving us along in this idea of grace. Grace appeared. He came and he saved us. Grace is going to appear again. Jesus is coming again. Here's what grace allows us to do. It allows us to do spiritually what is physically impossible. We can look backward and forward at the same time. We can look backward and celebrate God's grace when he sent his son Jesus to live for us and die for us and save us. We can look forward and anticipate future glory. Now think about anticipating future glory and why does that motivate you and me? I don't know about you, but there is a lot of pain and disappointment in the now. There are hurtful things that happen. One of our sisters, Diane Bernier, of course, in a devastating wreck, she's still recovering so many obstacles to overcome on her pathway to healing. Other church family members who have gone through tremendous difficulties this past couple of weeks, surgeries and beyond, There's a lot of different kinds of pains, too, that you guys go through. The pain of family struggles, the pain of job loss and economic instability, some people dealing with housing instability, wondering if they're going to keep their house warm. All kinds of disappointments that we experience in this life, even the pain of trying to rebuild a life sometimes. But future grace is meant to motivate you in the midst of present pain. It's meant to remind you, help you to look ahead and see that something better is coming. You know, when I think about this whole dynamic, and this is the best analogy I could come up with this week, but I think about a bunch of women sitting around moms telling their labor war stories. Have you ever sat through one of those kind of interactions before? It is a doozy. I mean, I've got to tell you, they're, they're sitting around, and one of them starts sounding off, oh, yeah, I remember my first labor. Oh, we were, it was agony for 24 hours. I thought I was going to die. You know, I'm sitting there hearing these kind of things, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, thank God that, that I don't ever have to go through that. I don't want anything to do with that. It sounds horrible. But you know, what, just mind-blowing as you hear one of these dialogues transpire? They always kind of like end with this statement like, it was worth it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It was worth it. Why was it worth it? Well, it was worth it because of the fruit of the labor, right? I got to hold him or her. 
And then they say something even crazier. I'd do it again. I mean, if men were responsible for this, like the population would plunge off of a cliff, right? You know, C.S. Lewis, using a similar type of analogy, he compared the Christian's future to waking from a nightmare. You've had that experience where you dreamed of something that was horrible and the loss was devastating. And then you woke up to that new day and you realized that your family member wasn't hurt or that you hadn't done something that you regretted or whatever it was. And you woke up and you were that much more grateful for the thing that you already had. You see, grace anticipates heaven and that should motivate your heart down to its core. It will be like holding your child after labor or waking up from a dream. But I'll tell you, there are still tough questions when it comes to the future, aren't there? There are some issues that feel like, how is God going to overcome this? I think of those of you who maybe you're praying for a family member who's never trusted Jesus. Or you've experienced some kind of pain in your life and you're saying, I just don't get how God's going to kind of turn that one and resolve it in my life. It just doesn't seem like it's going to work. But I'm telling you this morning, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says that God can do the impossible. And I, I need to lay claim by faith to that promise from the scriptures. In Revelation 21.4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So as even I come up to these unresolved questions, I have to come back again to my view of God. Do I believe he's big enough? For my unresolved questions, for my fears, for my concerns, in his scriptures, he says, guess what? I am. I am. So grace does more. It saves us. It trains us. It motivates us. And we're also going to see grace renovates us. Verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, really quick, as we think of that term, good works, sometimes we can get confused as believers and say, but I thought the Bible said that it had nothing to do with good works. Now why are we talking about good works? Here's how salvation works. Here's how the gospel works. Grace is the ground of the gospel. You approach Jesus with nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything when it comes to your salvation. But having said that, the goal of the gospel is good works. Jesus saved you to renovate you, to change you, to transform you so that you might become a person who's not just a person who occasionally does good works, but someone who is zealous for good works. I love that word zeal. Zeal means great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause. So think about your life right now. 
What are you doing right now with eagerness, with energy, with joy? That's where your zeal is. And I believe we all are zealous about something, whether that's rightly directed or wrongly directed. We have a zeal for something. And Scripture tells me if I want to live in the guardrails of God, that there are two things that will keep my zeal rightly directed. The first is this. Your heart and mind should be totally submitted to and absorbed in God. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, in mind, Deuteronomy 6.5. The second guardrail is you should be driven to meet the needs of others with all the speed, the eagerness, the energy, and the joy with which you meet your own needs. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. So that's what Jesus is doing as he's renovating you as you live your life on those guardrails, he's changing you from the inside out to love God and love people. Now, when it comes to this idea of loving people, I want to suggest that Scripture tells us what those good works are, and it tells us that those good works involve the ministry of mercy. What is mercy? Well, mercy is first seeing a need. And then mercy moves from seeing to mercy feels something. Mercy feels compassion. Now, compassion, I would describe it like this. It's the ability to get out of my own situation and put myself in someone else's shoes for a minute. Uh, if I was addicted, what would I need from someone else to help me? Or if I was homeless? Or if I grew up in that context, in that part of the world, with the limited resources and education that they have, what would I need from someone else? That's compassion. I'm starting to think about their situation. Thirdly, mercy is assuming responsibility for that need. It's not someone else's problem. I've seen it. I've felt compassion. Maybe God's asking me to do something about that problem. And I want to say this. Fourthly, mercy has no agenda. It's not Machiavellian. I'm not doing it so that my face or my church or my family can get seen in the newspaper or likes on Facebook. If those things happen, okay, so they happen to the glory of God. But that's not why I do what I do. In Matthew 25, Jesus outlines six acts of mercy that appear to be the test of genuine faith. Listen to what he says here. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we do these things for you? Obviously, I'm summarizing. And Jesus, the king, will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Think about this this morning. When you stand before Jesus at the end of your life, among the things that you will be judged for, held accountable for, whether it has to do with your speech or your holiness or your commitment to sound doctrine, among those things will be these six acts of mercy to the hungry, to the refugee, to the naked, the homeless, the sick, the imprisoned. Do you think these things matter to him? Do you think that this concerns him if that's kind of like one of the top tier things that I'm going to have to answer for when I stand before him at the end of my life? And if that is indeed the case, how do I do that well? In fact, how do I do it with zeal, like Paul's describing here in the text this morning? Well, let me begin with step number one for you. And I'm sorry, this one's a little negative. But step number one means that I got to get rid of my lame excuses. It turns out that we can all apply lame excuses. And I want to give you the Rob Wheeler definition for an excuse. This is this is the most creativity I could apply for excuses. Listen to this one. Excuses are simple objections which permit us to turn off our brains so we don't feel responsible. That's an excuse. And I'll tell you, I think of that lawyer. Remember the lawyer before the story of the, the Good Samaritan? And, and he comes up to Jesus and he's like, Oh, Jesus, you're talking about loving your neighbor, but really, who is my neighbor? Simple objection, right? I'm going to create a broad category, so broad that it's almost impossible to define it. And therefore, I can turn off my brain and I can reject responsibility. What other excuses sound a lot like that? Well, I don't have any time. I don't have resources. They're in their situation because of what they did. Simple objection, turn off brain, don't need to feel responsible anymore, and I call that lame. It has no place in the heart and the mind of the believer. Second step. Pray a dangerous prayer. God, help me see what you see. Boy, that's dangerous. <laughs> I, I'm not going to sugarcoat this this morning. You start praying like that, and you're going to start seeing some stuff, and it's not going to feel good always. For example, have you ever seen this map before? Do you know what this map is? You see, this map represents a heat map of all of the places of concentration of human trafficking activity in the United States of America. And as you look at that map, which part of the country is reddest? 
And as you look at that and you start processing that, I got to ask you a question. How does that make you feel? And how do you think that would start changing or informing your prayer life if you started seeing that? Because I wonder, as God looks at our country, if he doesn't see that as he's looking. Now, having said that, we have to move to the next step because when, when I see something like that, I can feel emotions, right? So the next step, as I think about making a difference, is developing an intelligent, informed understanding of the problem. You get hit by two emotions when you become aware of something like that. Emotion number one is outrage. I'm mad. And anger is actually a response God's given us when something's not just. The second is impatience. I want to do something about this right now, but I want to tell you that those two emotions are not fuel for the long haul. They might get you started in doing good works, but they will not sustain you to the end when it comes to doing good works. So what does? Well, information and understanding so that you're intelligently addressing an issue. Otherwise, you show up too late and you leave too early. So we need to be informed. And once we've had that, then finally, the last step, start making the biggest difference you can make. Now, I love the story of the starfish. I don't know if you guys have heard that story before. But when you get into meeting needs and telling people about Jesus or helping with works of mercy, you can start getting so overwhelmed with the problem that you start asking yourself the question, am I making a difference? Listen to this story. It's a great one. One day, a man was walking along the beach when he noticed a boy picking up and gently throwing things into the ocean. And approaching the boy, he asked, young man, what are you doing? Throwing starfish back into the ocean. The surf is up and the tide is going out. And if I don't throw them back in, they'll die, the boy replied. Well, the man laughed and he said, boy, don't you realize there's miles and miles of beach and there are thousands of starfish. You're not making any difference right now. And listening politely, the boy bent down to pick up another starfish, threw it into the surf, and he says, I made a difference for that one. Think about that. Imagine you developing that mindset. And then imagine a church becoming the city on the hill that Jesus described, and they develop that mindset. Now, listen, when you get into this work of mercy, and when you get into good works and becoming zealous for them, you're going to hear the old man's critique. You're going to think to yourself, the problems are so big. You know, like lostness in the Northeast region. There's just so many people that are unchurched and de-churched. How can I do anything about that? And this homeless problem, and this opioid epidemic, and, and human trafficking. How can I make a difference? Well, we've got to say what the the, the boy said, right? I made a difference for that one. 
So if you start it individually, and then what happens if the church becomes a city on the hill? And what happens if churches on the Cape collaborate together? And then what happens if we do this thing regionally where Christians are starting to say this together? And then a nation says this together. Do you know what they've called that in the past? Revival. Revival. The truth is, when the church becomes the city on the hill, we can make a difference to many ones. And when those many ones meet the kindness of God through his people, they become more open to hearing about his grace. I've come to this realization. Gospel proclamation and mercy work, they're not the same thing but the church is called to do both. But here's the thing about these two things. Different organisms, but they have a symbiotic relationship with one another. What happens if you take one away from the other? Both organisms suffer. So you need gospel proclamation, you need mercy for the church to be on fire. Listen, church, this morning as you leave, Bella has put together a wall out in the lobby. Maybe you saw it as you were coming into the church. It's a community needs wall. And we had a team of members. We called ourselves the discovery team. We were like 12 spies going into the promised land, trying to figure out how OBC can help, you know, be the light that Jesus wants us to be in our community. And we discerned some real needs that exist on Cape Cod. So what we've done on this wall is we've identified some of those needs. And I want to challenge you to go through the steps we talked about. First, chuck the lame excuses. Second, pray the dangerous prayer. Third, we have a card to help you get better informed. It briefly describes what the issue is. Then on the back, you'll also notice the organizations who are meaningfully addressing the issue. And then finally, here's the fun part. Start becoming zealous. Make a difference. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we have examined your word, we've seen that you have so much in mind for us, your church, that everything that we do, the activity, whether it's the preaching or raising up leaders or teaching, that this all flows out of your grace. And the purpose of all of this or the goal of all of this is so that we, your church, your people, would be zealous for good works. We're reminded as we think of this that grace is what you do. You don't hand us the keys to the car and say, go and operate my grace without my guidance. But you are like that good father who says, sit on my lap and drive the car with me. And so we want to be those people, Lord. We want to be the people who are zealous for good works, the city on the hill that you call us to be. Continue to do your work as we approach that wall after church. We do pray, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see what you see.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.